Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 187, and we're going to be interviewing Tony. How are you doing today, Tony? What's up, Jim? I'm good, man. Thank you. We were just Appreciate chatting it. a little bit. So you're an American from LA living in Sweden right now. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said that's part yeah, of the was... story, so we'll get into that. So the first yeah. question I ask everybody is, tell me about your childhood growing up. How was that? Uh, my childhood was, you know, if you if you ask an addict alcoholic, we want to go right into the trauma of it all, right? Because mm-hmm. that's that's a that's common thing. I the truth is is that I was, I was I have a lot of happy memories growing up. I was a bouncy like I like to jump around. I, you know, I was I was a pretty. I have a lot of fond memories growing up. Um, being. You know, I listening to stories from my my mom and just things that I remember correlating with things I remember. I just remember being a happy kid and I had a big a, a grand imagination. But the truth of the matter is, with that being said, I grew up with a lot of violence in my home. Um, you know, my parents were young. My mom was pregnant. So so the story goes that. My mom and I, my mom and I, my mom and my father were dating in high school. My mom was a year or so younger than my dad, and they were teenagers. They dated a little bit, then they broke up. Then several months later, or a couple of months later, my mom told my dad that she was pregnant with me. And um, we grew up in Los Angeles. I come from a Hispanic family background. Do you know how old and your mom was when she got pregnant? My mom was 18. Okay. So she's still 17, 17 going to be 18. And my dad was like a year older. And, um, and my dad was, you know, old school mentality of grant. My grandparents were like, you're going to marry that girl. So you're going to, and that's how it's going to be. So he had a lot of resentment against my mom. My mom got disowned by her father. There's a lot of, you know, I have a lot more compassion for them now that I'm older and having some recovery under my belt. But, but uh, so, yeah, so my dad beat my mom up a lot, did it in front of me, but he was really affectionate with me. They both were. So it was this, this mixed message of being, yeah. Violence and love mixed together. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. So they were, you know, very affectionate with me. Loving and, you know, a lot of kissing and compliments and laughing with me. And then in a moment, there's chaos ensuing and there's people getting thrown across. My mom's getting thrown across the room and there's police involved. And then I'm told, yelled at to go into my room and close the door and be quiet. So, I, you know... Were you scared? Yeah, 100%. You know, terrified. And also wanting it, not only wanting it to stop because there are two people I loved, but also wanting to protect my mom. And I couldn't because I was too little and powerless. So uh, in in some of that uh, would even happen. There's one time in particular. uh, So my family was very Catholic growing up. And... So a lot of church, a lot of um, Bible study and things like that. And there was one time I, I remember 
I don't remember how old I was. I might have been like six or seven. I can't remember. But we had gone to church like any other Sunday. And then we were we were going to go to the movies, family movie day after. And I was in the back of the car and just listening to music. And we were driving in a parking lot looking for parking. And I and I hear the yelling through the music and I see my dad grabbing my mom's hair and head and then it's bad and there's people around it's daylight I'm embarrassed I, I remember feeling embarrassed and scared and some other dude came to the car and tried to fight my dad and pull him out of the car it the police came I mean that day was terrible so I remember just not understanding right like what is this god thing if it can't even keep me safe and it can't like where is it and yeah, why it don't sounds I like your to... your brain was being yanked in multiple directions of like you said love hate <laughs> not known love, love hate yeah, god that, dude, I'm, I'm thinking things. about it right now it's just confusing it, to a kid yeah it was it really it really was and and uh you know so that's I grew up with that, and then you know I also was a uh, very hypersexual as a kid, and and um, you know I ended I was molested by male and female family members in my um, very early age. I, I want to say maybe as far as I can remember, maybe at the age of maybe seven, something like that. But I remember even earlier, like just being, feeling, uh, you know, just being curious and, and being very aware of, you know, my sexual energy and would get in trouble with like girls at, in school. And even like, remember what girls wanted to become very sexual. Well, I, I remember I got in trouble in kindergarten because oh, girls wow. were girls were trying to kiss me at recess and um and they were like it was almost like they were competing to kiss me and then the teachers just I remember just getting having the teacher come to me in the middle of it all and pulling me by my ear and I got in trouble but um so so then I was I was shamed with that but I remember I was so little but I, I can remember the feeling of why am I getting in trouble? I didn't do anything. And then there was shame. Like I'm a, I'm a bad boy, you know? And then that, that happened in first grade and then second grade, just getting in trouble every year. There's something having to do with inappropriate touching or something. And um, it, it was problematic early on, even before I remember the, the molesting bit. I'm not sure what that's about. So, you know, you've got, so I have all the, the, the ingredients ingredients for a Molotov cocktail, right? So I've got the violence, I've got the love confusing with violence. I've got the, the, the godlessness. Thing. Sexual trauma. And then I've got sex. I've got God, love, sex, and hate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, there you go. The, primary colors you know what it's, I mean? <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like sometimes if you were to hear the history of a serial killer 
Oh, right. Think about it, because you're so confused when you mix love and violence. They say that's one of the things that happens to serial killers is for some reason they have the violence part as they're getting sexualized and they somehow merge the two. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, but you know, you're mentally strong. Mm, You're mentally strong. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it, it didn't feel like that after a while. I mean, you know, I, like I said, I had a, I have a lot of fond memories too. I have a lot of, I was given one thing, my dad, you know, it's interesting. My dad was, um, eventually became my target in my addiction and my alcoholism. I used him as a bullseye out in the world, but, but he really did give me, um, so many things that have become a part of who I am. Like, um, he had a massive record collection. He was just, he was just an avid record collector and we'd listen to music all the time and he listened to everything. Like, I mean, everything, all genres. So I grew up with that. Uh, I grew up with film and he liked a lot of indie films back in the seventies. And he turned me on to different, he talked about directors and Hitchcock and stuff that I'm into, you know, uh, he would, he would encourage me to draw and would give me uh, paper and markers and crayons and drawing study tools. And uh, he would buy me instruments and, teach me guitar at like five or six. I remember him teaching me chords. I'm, I write music now, you know, and have for a while. Oh, that's and, awesome. I, I play, yeah. uh, not professionally, but I play guitar and piano. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. I that's give him much credit. Songwriters, you guys are on a different level. Yeah. I, Kurt Cobain said it best. I found it interesting. He said, I don't want to be a great musician. I want to be a great songwriter because it's different. Because you can get like a studio musician that could shred, but he can't come up with a lick on his own. He has to learn the lick from someone. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I don't consider myself, it's when people are, yeah, I don't really consider myself a a musician, right? Because I I have friends that are that talented, you know, they can shred or they can, that are just incredible musicians. But I'm more into the crafting of of a song or lyrics you know, um, that's my thing. And so, yeah, I, so in my, you know, later years, I, I've recorded and what I do is I'll, I'll write and record, craft it, write the parts. And then I hire more talented musicians to, to play certain parts and then I record it. So that's awesome. That's my, thank you. Yeah. That's, that's my dad's influence for sure. So I'm very grateful for that. And, um, you know, it's very sporty, academically, like just an achiever. I always want, you know, first place in soccer, uh, entered a speech writing class in fifth grade, won uh, in my in my district. And yeah, so when I look back, I, I, I look back at the little Tony and um, for so long, I, the, I, you know, addiction was it feels inevitable now when I look back at if I just look at my younger version of myself as you know outside of my current awareness um I can see that there weren't a whole lot of options (laughs) you know that and and um so the hormonal 
uh, chaos in his teenage dumb was just it was a place for me to find my voice you know really was i didn't feel like i had a voice i I was told to shut up and close the door you know be quiet um so when i became a teenager and i got turned into like turned on to uh punk rock music at the time and and um you know heavy music that was it you know shit mohawk and fingers up in the air and you can't tell me what to do and and a lot of alcohol and just whatever whatever was going on whatever was going around i I found it what was your Um, first age what age were you first introduced some type of drugs or alcohol well i remember in fifth grade i had a friend of mine schoolmate and he had an older brother who who was like had iron maiden posters on his wall i hardly saw his older brother but we would when i would go hang out with my friend we would go into his older brother's room and 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 find he had this little bottle and it was i later found out it was called rush it was amyl nitrate and his brother had it in his room and and so my friend chris took it out and and he said yeah smell this I'm like, what is it? So you smell it and then you get lightheaded. And um, so we did that. And I, I'd say that's probably my it's my first drug that I tried. Um there were like sipping the grown-ups beers. I, I had a like I said, I grew up with a Hispanic family, a, a big family, beautiful family. And but that meant that every couple weeks or so there was a birthday. And all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles and everybody got together. And so the grown-ups would get drunk. All the cousins would go around and pick up the leftover cups and sip it, you know. But um, but I remember the amyl nitrate was a big, was a big. I never heard of it. Ten, what kind of nitrate? I think it's called amyl nitrate. Don't quote mm-hmm. me because I don't, I don't, I think that's what it is. That's but they okay. called it they called it rush and it and and now and then later i think they called them poppers and it and it became like a sexual thing now i don't know if it was always that i don't know i was a kid you know we just knew we smelled it and we got dizzy right it's probably like huffing paint or something yeah right um but i re- i remember that clearly because it was so um you know that was a lot for my young brain you know the one 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 effect was uh yeah was a was a thing but um yeah i um by 13 years old there's um some of it's spotty you know because it, I, I i can't say it really grabbed me um at any point until i was around 13 years old i had um one of my one of my friends my childhood friends um who we we stayed very cool we were brothers you know throughout throughout my life uh at that time we had my mom would drop me off at school early at my grandmother's house and i went to meet up with my buddy and we went to a couple of uh another friend of ours house before school started so it must have been like seven in the morning seven thirty, and he said yeah we're gonna go we're gonna drink some some wine and uh hang out for a little bit i was like cool let's do it so we did that and i remember getting 
getting pretty drunk at Boone's farm or something. And, you know, my friends are dancing on the table. It was wild. We were partying and it was like so early in the morning. And I thought this is way better than school. And then the music stopped and my buddy was like, okay, we, we're going now. We got to go. We got to go. to like, Where are we going? We got to go to school, man. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got to go, dude. We can't stay here. Oh, all right. <laughs> we go to school and I'm, I'm pretty, pretty drunk. And um, so I, I thought, well, we got to hold it together, man. So I go into my first class and my teachers liked me. And at that time, I, I got pretty relatively good grades. And, but I show up in school and, and I got to pee. And so I'm raising my hand in the back of the class. My teacher's like, yeah, she's in the middle of the lesson. Not now, Tony, not now. And I'm like, oh, I got I to gotta go. Raise it again. Tony, I said, not now. I said, look, I got to pee. If you don't let me go, I'm going to pee in the, in the classroom. I got to go. I said, not now. Sit down and be quiet. All right. So I got up and I just boom, unzipped and peed in the trash can in the middle of the class. dude the kids are like and people are like what (laughs) what wow and i was like i told you she's like get out (laughs) (laughs) get out yeah get out out now so that wasn't a good day you know i got in trouble for that and i think that was i remember that being the start of something where i i just wanted to check out i just wanted to start checking out i like checking out uh, was there something not, you were checking out from <clears throat> yeah i think i well you know i'm i realize being older now and i i realize i just was i didn't have any tools um to effectively process my emotions uh i didn't have my parents weren't equipped to give, to offer any emotional tools. Uh, They didn't have any themselves. And um, I just, I didn't, I didn't have any access to, to any sort of therapy or a way to process, or if, if anybody was offering it, I couldn't hear it. I couldn't grab it. So, um, you know, it was, it was a lot. And, you know, I think that, yeah, just I didn't know how to be in the world. I always felt different. You know, you, we hear it a lot amongst our tribe, right? Yeah. And, you know, so I, I think oblivion just, it was boundless. There were no rules and I can be, and I didn't, and I didn't, uh, I felt uninhibited, you know, so, which was a stark contrast to, to feeling like I had a bunch of secrets and I couldn't talk about it and I was told to be quiet or act right or behave. Um, I wasn't allowed to have feelings that weren't pleasant. So, you know, oblivion was was a, a welcome alternative, a relief, you know, a relief. And, you know, some, some you know, some, that's an experimental phase, uh, phase, right? Being a teenager, I and mean, you've got hormones. It's already, it's already rough being a teenager. Oh right? yeah, you know? <laughs> like, 
right? Like having an existential crisis. Who am I? What am I here for? What's the point of life? Dude, and you're not a kid. You don't want to be baby, but you're not an yep. adult and nobody trusts you. And you're, exactly. You know, it's a rough it's place rough. to be. It is, man. I It really is. Like, I feel for, for being for teenagers, you know. I work in mental health now and have for many years in recovery also. And, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of younger people and I, cause I, and I get it, you know, I understand it's hard. It's hard being a teen. So throw some, some drugs and alcohol on that. And that's just gas on the fire. I was really, I was a mess. I was a hot mess. And I, and I remember, um, um, you know, and just, and blowing opportunities didn't help. You know, I would, I would raise the hopes. I'm, I'm pulling out of the, out of the blue, our blue book, right? Not, but I would accomplish something. Uh, I would achieve something that was, that was awesome or that I felt good about or proud about. Uh, like, you know, when, winning this speech writing contest or um, with kids that I thought, that I looked up to and I thought they were really smart and I thought I had no no chance in hell and hell to compete but was encouraged to do so and then to win first first place was felt so surreal and it's so good you know and then to be a part of soccer teams for several years and hit all-stars and be a part of that that felt really good you know and my dad would get excited about that that made me feel good um I'd enter uh drawing contests and and do well in that you know and that felt really good i was in in um singing groups and a couple of uh after school music programs in junior high and i would do pretty good there and that felt good and then i would and then i started to like come into school drunk and get kicked out and just that level of shame it was it and it and yes it was the outside disappointment but it was just compounding the self-loathing i had right just compounding like i i i learned that i will i'm the best at knocking myself down way more than anybody else thinks that they could and and uh yeah, it just felt just felt like not a good person. Like I'm not doing it right. Clearly I'm not doing it right. I think that I am. I'm almost doing it right. I'm I'm almost. You know, Did you I'm have stuck any it, and I, health issues like anxiety or depression. <clears throat> well, I think that the depression came it's hard to say what that diagnosis would be because I, I then I just chose out a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, and a lot of sex. Um, as soon as that kicked in, hormones kicked in as a teenager. I mean, I went full balls to the wall. That was just dopamine, dopamine or sedate. That was it, man. And that was, that's what had all of my attention. And I crashed, I crashed and burned mentally. Um, so I had an opportunity to go to get a scholarship to the LA School of Arts um, in eighth grade from one of my musical te- my music teachers, and 
And I remember being so excited about that. And she says, but the contingency is that you have to have a certain grade point average your freshman year, ninth grade in LA uh, in order to go the following year. You'll have to do a formal audition, but she pulled the card for me. Um, and But that was the year that I fell in love with chaos. And I started becoming fighting and being a troublemaker and becoming a pyromaniac got into that i mean dude you said it earlier like you know this is the makings of a serial killer and mm -hmm. you know i watch my wife and i we watch a lot of uh I was crime just shows dude yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know like, yeah who am i right yeah but, um but um yeah, and I and I crashed and burned. I remember I was in. I um. I was in my room, and my mom came in, and I must have had the music loud or something. I can't remember, but she fussed into my room, and she said, and she looked at me, and I don't. I I must have. I was somewhere else, and I just. I remember being brought my awareness was brought into the moment by the her expression on her face and her the expression i saw on her face was like like what the oh my god what and then she was happy and then the angle of where she was she was looking up at me and it, and all of that would happened in like a nano you know a couple nanoseconds and i looked down and realized i was standing on my bed and i was pulling my hair I had long hair at the time, and and she, and she looked at me like, "What is wrong with you?" And she freaked out, and my poor mom, you know, she was just so freaked out. And I said, "I don't know. I need a big. I need a break." And she says, "From what? You're not even going. To, you're not even going to school." And I said, "From this." And I just kind of like hit my head. And she was like, oh, fuck. She didn't know what to do. I And she was like, I don't know what to do with you. I don't even know. I said, I need rehab. And now at the time, I can say this now, at the time, that was true for me. I, need, I, I meant that. But I also started to see there were people that, musicians that were going to rehab and that I thought were cool. So I have to say there was something about now looking back that it was cool that these musicians broke their anonymity or whatever, talked about them getting sober because I, as a fucked up kid, noticed it. And when I needed it, I thought, well, if they, they're cool, then, then I'll go to rehab. I need to go to rehab. So... Thanks to, I guess, guys like Mike Ness and Social Distortion and some some other some other people that talked about that. Uh, Social Distortion did a, <clears throat> a great cover of Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. Yeah, dude, right? Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great, great cover. Great cover. Yeah, man. Uh, and so then off I went for my summer vacation at 15 years old. I turned 15 and then I went to rehab. 
for three months, summer vacation, almost three months. And yeah, that was, I was in a, like a little padded room, an observation room. What got you there? Uh, well, that, that mental breakdown. Okay, that when you were banging and screaming your head. Okay, yeah, all you. that. Yeah, and she said, I don't know what to do with you. I said, I need rehab. And then the, the insurance, her insurance uh, covered this mental hospital. And um, that's where I got to go to detox. I needed to detox for sure. Um, and then, so that was my introduction into psychiatry, the idea, the concept of therapy, group therapy, individual therapy, medications. Um, yeah. And being with other troubled kids in there too, different ages. But, um, but I, I came out of there feeling better, uh, uh, motivated. Clearly, I mean, I, you know, anytime you stop putting tough poison in your body, especially at a developmental age like that, you know, in the developmental yeah. years, you know, I, I guess the body repairs itself pretty good. So I felt good physically. I felt a little clearer. I felt like, okay, this is my opportunity to make better decisions and um, try to be a little more positive. And, you know, so I, I really had the best of intentions starting school again. And, um, you know, I had blown my opportunity that audition to the School of Arts. Um, I suppose in hindsight, I could have reignited that. But I just, the level of shame, you know, was deep. I, didn't, I still didn't have the tools. And there wasn't a lot of follow-up with therapy once I left the facility. Uh, it was sort of like, okay, off you go kind of thing. And, you know, uh, and that's, what, that's what I remember at that, at that time. And I, and I came back to school and there were some, some kids that were encouraging and supportive and that felt good. And, but then it was being teenagers and I don't, maybe it was just the people I gravitate, you know, I was like an artsy guy, artsy kid. So I liked the, uh, I wasn't a jock. Um, I wasn't, you know, that you, you have, you have to find your tribe. It's like tribal discovery, right? Yeah. When you become a teenager, you have to, it's about belonging and finding your tribe. And my tribe was always kind of the misfits of, of the groups. Um, and it seemed like inevitably I, I discovered LSD is what happened. I discovered LSD. What age? And. 15, 15 years old, and yeah, 15, 16 years old, and that was different, that was a different experience, I, looking back, I, I'm actually, you know, I'm grateful for that time, because it, it, it allowed my brain, or my experience, or my preconceived notions, and belief systems, and those that that I was indoctrinated into that were heavily um, dominating my mental landscape and my world 
felt so limiting and inadequate. The rhetoric that I had been surrounded with, and I think the lack of um, appropriate support for me at the time, uh, I felt a bit unbridled and I didn't have, I didn't know anything but what I knew, what I was told. And so LSD allowed me to experience this world in a whole other way. So, you know, for that, I, I'm grateful still because I was able to think outside of the box. And with that came um, being able to have a different perspective on things. Now, I was still a wild child, so I could do anything too much. And then that became a thing was just excess. You know, I just don't have a, it's hard for me to have the off switch. And that's, you know, I can't turn the knob down. It's good. So I, that's, then more is better. <laughs> if it's yeah. good, then more is better. <laughs> you know the way like, our brains work, right? That's as addicts, just that dope. Like you said, you mentioned before, it's just that release of dopamine. That's all we're after. It doesn't matter how yeah. we get it. I, yeah, it's our brains. Amazing, yeah. Uh, amazing pieces of technology really is right i am um i'm so fascinated by neuroscience and yeah so neuroscience yeah oh yeah like uh, i've read a lot about um neuroplasticity because that's what happens to our brains once we start healing our brains actually get rewired and we go back to the way we were before in a way um it's very interesting there's a great book I think it's the joy of living. I could find okay. I could find it and message it to you, but the first it's Great. by a monk. It's by a Buddhist monk, but the first half of the book is all about his experience with scientists and how they were teaching him about neuroplasticity and how they use meditation, and that's how the monks are able to do the things they do through neuroplasticity. Yeah. They literally train their brain to be calm and. Some of these monks, it's a pretty cool thing. So they go to this lake. It's it's a like I don't know. It's not in the Arctic, but it's very cold, ice covered lake. And they will sit there and they will put freezing cold towels. They'll put them in the lake and then they'll put them on the monks' backs and cover them. And you'll see steam come off of them because the monks, through meditation, raise their body temperature like a degree or something, not like crazy, but it's like one or two degrees. And they actually will. You can see the steam coming off of them because their bodies are getting warmer. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's crazy. It's fantastic. Yeah, I just um so two I guess about a month and a half ago or something. I I I treated myself to I, I ticked off a bucket list item and I um probably since around maybe two thousand ten I, I had become inspired to become a, a hypnotherapist and um and it's just i just made excuses for not doing it and so i i went i flew to amsterdam and and took a course and became a certified uh, hypnotherapist so i just got my um certificate in the mail last oh, week pretty, pretty excited about that and yeah thanks um yeah so 
so you know it was a lot of just getting a lot more getting into trouble you know trying hard doing okay falling getting back up trying again and as soon as i got introduced to cocaine and crystal meth or speed uh it things got really squirrely really fast for me and you know anything amphetamine or that made me go fast um it's interesting because i have friends now that are diagnosed adhd and i have a doctor friend of mine in sweden here she specializes in adhd right and i said it's so I'm, strange I'm part of the club yeah yeah a lot dude like we laugh about it because i'm like my closest people in my immediate circle have it and and so my doctor friend's like yeah you probably have it you know i'm like i don't know i get it i get it you know or or bipolar is what i hear also you know i have the same thing yeah i'm also bipolar so i, I mm-hmm. take medication for it i need the medication mm-hmm. it really helps it helps you dude and that's that's the thing right i um yeah i i started to get in trouble with police and then i left home i left my my mom's house um when I was around 16, moved in with a, in with a uh, sorry about that. Uh, you there? Yep, I'm here. Yeah, um, so many apps, right? Everything, it's like, bing, bing, bing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. But uh, I... Yeah, so I started getting into, so I moved out and moved in with a girlfriend and her mom. And um, it was kind of a bit of a party house. And I just wanted to be left alone uh, to do what I want. I was, I was, I couldn't be tamed at that point. It wasn't going to happen. I would already run away from home. And, you know, it was, I was out in the wild and I chose that. And, and, a lot of I had a lot of fun. I remember a lot of fun times, and then I remember a lot of scary times. I was, I had uh, given myself over to chaos. I chose it. I chose chaos. I wanted chaos. I told myself I like it here. There's no rules. It's boundless. And you know what? It's crazy. Life is crazy, and this is crazy, and I can do crazy. Um, and so that in, that included a lot of um, taking everything, whatever I could, uh, a lot of it, and included drinking and driving. Um, included taking uh, PCP, um, and just anything I can get my hands on, running amok, you know, being a vandal, lighting things on fire, just being a, a, a menace, really. Um, that's my version. That's how I view it now. But it, but I've, I've spoken to a lot of my friends from back then and they're like, dude, you're always such a sweetheart. I don't understand. So I'm not quite sure where the, where the line is right it's like you know my version their version somewhere in the middle is the truth i guess yeah yeah but um 
I ended up getting having a lot of uh, failure to appears. Court cases started to happen. Um, oh, you know, overnight stays in jails, different jails. And, um, I remember I I I borrowed a a friend's car. And I was in Hermosa Beach, California with a couple of friends. We had a party and I never went to sleep. A couple of us didn't. The next day, we wanted to go and pick a friend up. And um, a lot of people were passed out. And I asked to borrow a friend of mine's bro older brother, actually. He was a buddy, too. You know, hey, can I borrow your truck? We're going to go pick up so-and-so and we'll be back. And he was like, yeah, sure. And I didn't have a license at that point. And we drove and in Hermosa Beach. There's a lot of um, a lot of steep hills, and and it was an old truck he had where the emergency brake was a kind of had like a, it was like a, a little knob and a stick that yeah. you pulled under the steering wheel. You you remember? Do you ever see? I that? remember exactly. I'm a car salesman, so I see all type of cars. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So dude, so yeah, so we're you know, there's three of us in the in the front of this truck we've got some beers in the back in the in the bed in the back and i'm driving and we're going down this hill and i i mean i'm put, i'm applying the brake and my i go all the way to the pedal to the metal and it's not it's only slowing down it's not stopping the truck and now we're going further steeper on the hill and i'm accelerating and I can't stop. And my friend goes, pump the brakes, pump the brakes. So I'm pumping the brakes and it's not working. He goes, pull the emergency brake right there. And dude, it was like a bad movie. I pull the emergency brake, boom. And I hold it, the stick broke and I'm holding it. And we look at each other, we're like, fuck. <laughs> and we're going down this hill and it's like traffic on a busy highway in front of us. Or a Mercedes, uh, part uh, Mercedes. Uh, what do you call it? A uh, um, sales dealership place, right? Where they go. <laughs> words learn. dealership. There you go. Thanks, man. Yeah, so there's a Mercedes dealership to the right. There's traffic in front, or there's this office supply building to the left, a wall, right? And it's like, which one do we pick? Because <laughs> we're going into one of them, and. I couldn't decide. And I was like, and we're screaming. And <laughs> my friend on the right, he's like contemplating with the door open, whether he should jump and roll out. I mean, it was an intense moment. And I went for the, I decided for the wall, but got cold feet at the end when we were going towards it. So I swerved to the right and hit this concrete you know they have these metal posts in front of the the dealership in front of the cars and sidewalks so ran into slammed into one of the metal posts and that's that stopped us and the the hood smoking immediately they the guys get out they say run boom so they take off the i think they grab a couple of the beers out of the bed and then they take off they're gone and I'm like, I didn't know what to do because there's the the car salesman is looking at me, yelling at me. I got people on the street yelling at me and I'm behind the wheel and I don't really know what to do. So I lag in time and I'm too late. 
and one of the guys grabs me. So I'm busted. And my dad had to come. He had to pay for some of that. So what happened was I, I knocked one of the posts out of the, the sidewalk. And, uh, and then I hit a Mercedes. And then that Mercedes hit the next one. It was like a domino effect, right? So they just, oh, yeah. so I, so it just fucking created a domino effect. And, and what I later find, found out is, is that one of the, the sales guys was showing one of those cars to a potential customer. So I almost hit them. It was bad. Dude. It was super bad. And, um, got lucky. Super lucky. So stuff like that was happening. And I got, I had to go to jail. Uh, the, the, the courts had had enough by the time I was I mean, 19, 19, 18, 19. It, it was, it, yeah, they were like, you're, you got it. This is too much. So I had to turn myself in and do one year in my county jail. And I had to turn myself in. So the night before I did, it was a big party and, you know, I, and then I went in. And I ended up doing about four and a half months out of a out of a year, and they let me out. But in that time, I was that experience for me. I'm not like you know. I was a I was a scrappy fighter kind of guy. I turned into that guy, but in there. It's a whole other level. Like people die in there. It's it's just not it's not it's not a good place um, <laughs> for anybody. It's an understatement. But I just that was a wake up call for me. Um, and I was looking for spiritual spirituality. I went to some AA meetings in there, and I read a lot, and I worked out, and I came out feeling renewed again, similar to the mental hospital stint some years earlier. And um, and I came out and some friends threw a party for me, welcome home party. And there was drugs and there was again. But this time I tried to manage it. Like just drink beer, you know, just do coke, don't do meth, you know, just smoke pot, don't do coke. You know, and then I just really tried to to EQ or manage, you know, just drink wine, don't drink whiskey, right? And did a lot of that. Sometimes I, I hit it, sometimes I didn't. And and fast forwarding a little bit, I reconnected with a with a friend of mine um, when I was fifteen. Her and I reconnected. And um, started dating. It happened to be a moment where I kind of had my stuff together because I would have pockets of that. And uh, and not long after that, she got pregnant. And we made the crazy decision to let's just, let's have it. And we did. And that I thought was going to save me. This is the, this is what I needed. I need this motivation. This is what's going to straighten me out, and I'm going to be a great father, and I'm going to going to be the father. You know, I'm going to do it a little. I'm going to do it better. 
we're gonna do it better, right? And that got me so only so far, but it was it started this things got really bad uh, in terms of when I would get loaded, I would be gone for days. Um, I was hanging out in Dodger criminal infested areas where that was something a little more new. Uh, it seemed that the dark times were getting darker, but then I'll pop out and get it together for a little bit. And then I'd pop back in. And so in that way, it got worse. Um, and, but, but I, but I, I love Nico is my son's name. I loved him so, he, it was so surreal. And I felt like he was some otherworldly kind of, I don't know. I was in, I, I fell in love with my son. And in some ways that fucked me up when, when I was fucking up, when I couldn't, you know, I, I still was young and still had very little emotional tools, right? Um, but I loved him so much that I kept trying, you know? And eventually his mom was like, dude, one of us has to be the parent right now. I got, we gotta go. So they went and moved with her mother. And after about four or five years, trying to make that work and and after that, I went back to school, moved in with my mother, my stepfather, my brother, and did cleaned up for about a year and felt pretty good about that. thought I got some momentum here. things were looking up. you know uh, Nika's mom you know well, she's feeling pretty positive about that and um but then my brother at that time, my younger brother, well, he's he's doing drugs now and he, he's living at the house down, he's in the room down the hall. And guess what drug he's into? Meth. Oh boy. <laughs> so, you know, I remember um, trying to do homework in my room. I had to, like, I had to do homework. <laughs> And I can and I know what's going on down the hall, man. You know what I mean? Like, I fucking know what's going on down there. It's late. And I know what's happening in there. And I know I know how he's acting. And at this point, I've done just about every drug under the sun. So I was like, fuck. Oh, okay, just that's his thing. I just focus on your thing. You're doing good. I can do it. Yeah, what the fuck? And there was a few nights of that before I just knocked on his door. I was like, all right, dude, give it to me. I was like, no, no, bro, I'm gonna give it to me, man. And then I was on, off and running again. Stop schools. There's... And then I ended up homeless and getting shot at because I was messing around with people's partners that I shouldn't have been messing around with. Now I'm hanging around with arms dealers and meth cooks <laughs> just like I, I i don't know who's shooting at me but i'm getting shot at i don't want to get caught by the police 
so uh, the girl I was dating at the time was like, dude, I, I can't. Like, you got to go. So I had nowhere to go. And I remember I got I to gotta sleep. So, um, and, and I can't sleep down here. So I, I found a grocery store and I threw a couple of crates together to get up on the ladder and climb up to the, to the roof and um, threw a couple of pallets there. I had a backpack, I had a, a acoustic guitar. I, I had some, an old pipe that didn't have any drugs in it left, but I was trying to milk it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was laying on the pallet and I laid on my backpack and it's like the moon's shining and it smells like there's like a restaurant in a strip mall next to the grocery store and it smelled like dead cat or rats or something. And I'm hearing scurrying around. And I remember I couldn't get high. I realized I was laying on a pallet, I realized I'm fucking cold, I'm getting shot at, I'm hungry, I got nowhere to go. And and I'm sleeping on a fucking rooftop of a grocery store right now. How did this happen to me? There's, you know, uh, that, that was, that was real. Dude, that was real. Yeah. 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 The next day, the sun, you know, the sun was cooking on me and it woke me up and I was really parched. You know, had no prospects, nowhere to go, no money, and nobody wanted me around. And so I thought, well, I'm going to, there's a bunch of orange groves. I'm going to eat some oranges on the orange groves, and I'm going to walk to this park by my mom's old neighborhood, and I'll just drink water from the water fountain, and I'll figure out where I'm, what my next move is. So I did that, and I was sitting there. And it's like, it's a beautiful, I'm sure it was a beautiful sunny day. For me, it was like way too hot and I was not into it, right? I just wanted to die. But uh, but there were parents and kids are playing and people are laughing and there's couples laying on the grass. You know what I mean? It was like this commercial for like antidepressant drug or something. And I'm like gray, black and white, you know, and everything's in technicolor or something. And um and I thought, I'm going to kill myself. I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. So I get to a payphone, hustle, hustle some money, and um, call my son's mom. And I say, hey, um, you know, can you just tell Nico, like, I, I love him so much. And, and I really did the best that I could. I'm so sorry. And thank you for being a good mom. She's like, where the fuck are you right now? Where are you? Shut up. Where are you? And I was, and I didn't want to tell her. And she's, and um, but I did. I said, shut the fuck up. Where are you? So I told her. She's like, don't move. And then she hung up. And she showed up with some water and a sandwich, and I think a piece of fruit. She says, get in the car, and and she said a bunch of things like, you don't get to do this. We need you. And Nico needs you, and you're his father. You don't get to do that. That's not how this works. And you're gonna go clean up. And you're done here. You're gonna get the fuck out of here. You're gonna go back. You're gonna go to your dad's. And I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to dad's. She's like, you're not negotiating here. There's nothing to negotiate. You're done. So I went with my. You know, it was funny. Like I, my tail between my legs, but 
put my chest out. <laughs> it's the oddest thing, right? Being an addict where you're like, you're beat up. But then you still think you've got some negotiating power. Like, well, I need, I need, yeah, okay, I need help. But not like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm different. There's something about me. It's, I don't need help like the rest of you. I just need a little bit here and there. You know what I mean? You, yeah, we all think we're different. Yeah. What happens so fast forwarding when you get sober? What or I'm sorry, not when you get sober, but what happened after that? So that was that was when I my aunt, my aunt, my my dad's sister, she was so sweet, she's always been so sweet. She says, Look, <laughs> I found you uh, the Salvation Army has a rehab in Santa Monica. It's six months. Please don't say no. Please go for me. Do it for me. Do it for me. And she never asked me for anything. My sweet Aunt Angie. Um, I knew I had to. I had to do something else. So I go there. And I commit to a six-month rehab. And dive in. All the therapy. All the groups. All the anger management. All the 12-step meetings. Um, yeah. That was, that was in 2003. And, and then it was get a job. And... You know, Nico and his mom, by that point, she had she had met a man, lovely man. He's Swedish, which ties into me being in Sweden. And um, eventually he was having a difficult time um, getting adequate work in California and then being from Sweden. So they opted to go visit Sweden for him to make some money. And then um, the plan was for them to, to go back. So... That was in 2005, I think, or 2006. And and then it turned into a longer stay, which was not awesome for me. But it was going on, I remember, nine months or something. It didn't the longest I'd gone without seeing Nico, and it was freaking me out. Now I'm sober a few years this time. And I'm doing sponsoring a lot of people. And, um, you know, just that was pretty much my life, was just work and, and program sobriety. And, I was freaking out. I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Fuck it. I'm going to Sweden. So I come to Sweden and it's beautiful. The culture is wonderful. And, you know, my sponsor at the time is like, cause I had a really hard time with, with it. And he went to, to butt heads with mom's, her, his mom about it. Um, but he said, dude, I, I get it. But, like, honestly, if you could have a choice, I mean, if you could choose for your son, like, you want him to grow up in L.A. or, like, Sweden, dude, and have that experience. Like, in nature, and it's a, or L.A. You know, yeah. like, oh, all right, I get it. I get it. So that was a bit of humble pie. And it, be, it just became, yeah, we got into a routine. But Nico and I became super close he was so supportive you know we we talked to him openly he was nine when i went to rehab and his mom and i and we had to talk with him and i said nick i just want to be the best dad that i can for you like i love you. you're the reason i'm here so i'm gonna go do some work on myself so that i can be be around for you and he was so sweet he's like i love that dad i'm so proud of you and you're gonna do great so he's he's been my champion all along you know um and when it when life gets hard I think about him and um, 
so but to bring it up to speed a little bit i know i've been i've been going off on no, you're fine. here man i'm sorry dude <laughs> you're good get me started man don't get me started <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh you know, I, I ended up, I had a friend of mine who in program, I was having a difficult time. I've been doing sales and working, you know, mortgages and, and precious metals and, and selling sand on the beach. You know what I mean? Everything um, for a lot of years, most of my years. And, and when I, when I, I started to have a major spiritual shift it was happening and I didn't really wasn't really sure if I noticed it at the time, but I know what I did notice was that my hustle game got all fucked up. You know, I couldn't hustle the same way for money like I did before. And, and um, I was frustrated and it wasn't that I wasn't making a lot of money for the company I was working for I made a lot of money, but they were wondering why I wasn't making a lot of money. But that's because I was feeling bad about my commission spread. So I was cutting my pay. I, I it was fucked up, man. Yeah. And it was a it was it was a, it was tough. And and I thought, God, what do you want? Like help me, man. Like I'm here, I'm fucking shepherding your people and you know what I mean? I'm I'm trying to like I'm trying to help all these people for you. Like I, you know what I mean? Like what help me? What the fuck? So I have this guy, buddy of mine, and he he knows my struggle and he says, Hey dude check it out there's this rehab in malibu it's one of these bougie ones dude they're looking for this person part-time believe this healthy boundaries group and i know you do a lot of work you're doing a lot of work with people and all that i go dude man i got like the last thing i want to do is help another fucking another bunch about i'm already doing that he's like i know dude i'm just saying like switch it up a little bit you know what i mean you're kind of stuck in a loop switch it up did you check them out and so i did and they're like, can you start tomorrow? And I was like, no, I got to put a notice. And, and I went. And first, first night, first shift, there's um, there's a group of the clients around me, and I, I don't know what I'm telling stories, whatever we're just doing. And there was this one girl, Ashley was her name, and and uh, she said, dude, who the fuck are you? Uh, like seriously who the fuck are you dude my my therapist for two years has been trying to get me to like talk about all this she, she you're not coming back tomorrow are you they everybody knew it was my first trial day and when she said that to me she's like i've been to every i've been to 12 rehabs i've had all the top psychiatrists and therapists who the fuck are you and I, it, I knew what she meant when she said it and the way that she looked at me was I trust you. You fucking get it. You get it. And trust is a big issue. Trust is a major issue for most human beings, I think, but certainly for a lot of us that struggle with, with addiction and, and, and that maybe have some trauma background. And it was because of Ashley. She's like, you're not coming back, are you? And I said, I'll come back. She's like, you're not coming back. I said, I'll come back. So I have to thank Ashley for that. She ended up... Um, we were friends for a long time and for years after that. And, and she ended up not making it, you know, like a lot of us don't, uh, she fell off and, and didn't make it. I'm sorry to but hear it's that. because of her that I decided to just thank you. Thank you. But it's because of Ashley that I decided to stay to come back. And in that time, one of my, 
one of my work buddies, really good guy, great guy. Still talk to him all these years later. This was in 2007. Um, we were working together nights and and within like the first month or something, he goes, dude, you know what? I got to introduce you to this guy. You'd be really great uh, being like a recovery companion, sober companion, we call him, called him at the time. I'm like, what's, what's that? You know, so he tried to explain it to me. I'm like, it sounds weird. You're just hanging out with people one-on-one, I guess, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But dude, you've got that thing, you know, like, and I was like, I don't know, man, I'm busy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know about all that. But he slung me in. He's like, hey, I'm stuck. I was supposed to do this thing. I committed to it. I can't do it. Can you please fill in for me, man? Please. And it was him. His name's Jose. And I love him. I love him. Jose Hernandez out in California. Beautiful man. Uh, and I said, okay, dude, I'll do it for you. So he introduces me to this guy. This guy's worked with a lot of um, people some of us have heard of, high-profile people and, and things like that. So he had that reputation. And uh, so I did. I did a weekend with this guy. It was intense. Um, working with a whole team of uh, different levels of security and full-on operations and addicts doing addicty things like throwing computers out the second story window to the dope dealer down at the bottom. You know what I mean? Fucking crazy. That was my first night ever. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking he's trying to jump out the window. So I grab my shirt and pull him back, you know, thinking, no, don't jump. And I look out there and I see this guy with the computer in the dark down the alley. <laughs> so I fucking, yeah, that was, a, that was a whole thing. My adrenaline's going. I call, dude calls me and he says, hey, man, are you okay? We got him. I say, he said, uh, yeah, our police officer, off-duty police officers that we worked with. Yeah, yeah, they got him down the street, but we're all good down there. But how you doing, man? You okay? Can you, we stay? And I was like, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, is it always like this, man? <laughs> He's like, sometimes, but not always. He's like, are you good? I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm good. I'll stay. So after that, he said, hey, man, why don't you just come work with me? So he took me under his wing. Um, and for obvious reasons, I've signed a lot of NCNDs and things like that. But I've, I've, I've been privileged to travel the world and help a lot of different types of people um and 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 um they grapple with not just addiction but mental mental health and then they grapple with maybe privilege um that's a thing too you know people have this this idea that if people are financially or materially privileged that what do they have to complain about you know what do they have to bitch about but you know walk a mile in somebody's shoes and you'll find out and so um so i've been been very fortunate to be able to help to help others too uh, and not just with drugs but also you know it's funny in, in sharing my early stories i had no coping mechanisms no therapeutic tools no emotional tools and that's not my story today um fast forward to 20, 2018, my son Nico and I, um, you know, we had a three-day rule. We talked every, we wouldn't let three days go by without checking in and video calls, or I would fly out here and then he would fly to LA and then we'd take turns and all that. And uh, at the end of 2018, he coughed up blood and, and 
got scared, called his mom, his mom called me. And that began a whole other leg of another chapter uh, in, the, in, in the book of life for me. And later it turned out he was diagnosed with cancer. So I flew out here then uh, at that time. And, you know, my mom was like losing her house. My brother was about to turn himself in on a five-year prison sentence. We, and then he ended up in the hospitals and we thought he had cancer. Then it turns out he doesn't. Then I get the call from my son's mom. Nico's coughed up blood. That, that year, man, was crazy as fuck. My girl at the time that I was with in LA for many years, she was diagnosed bipolar that year, which explained a lot. 2018 was nuts and leading into 2019. And so, so leading into 2019, that was a lot of cancer treatments, a lot of chemo, radiation, surgery on his lung to remove the tumor that was like, uh, had, had metastasized and it was large. They had to cut a part of his lung out. And then he was, was a fighter and he bounced back. And then uh, in July of 2019, I'd been here for the lung surgery. Then I'd bounce back and then I'd come back out. So I bounced back home after his successful lung surgery and his treatments were going to begin again, another round of chemo. And he's like, dad, I'm just going to be doing this thing. Like, you know, it's okay. You can go do what you need to do and just, you know, come back. So I was like, okay. So I fly back home and I'm not there. I don't even think a couple of days because I, I still remember being jet lagged. And I get a call from one of my brothers from my, my childhood friends that one of my best friends, Scott, had died. And this is this is one of my buddies that I've that um has meant a lot to me. And we both have uh um run parallel on our personal journeys and we would kind of like you know come together and then we do our lives and we come together and just like i don't know like a couple of weeks or i want to say less than a month before I, that that call he had texted me and <clears throat> he took a picture of his suitcase we would talk a lot about how we had gypsy lives you because know, we always joke about like living out of a suitcase kind of like batman or a fireman we got to just go and put out a fire and he took he sent me a picture of his suitcase he was like brother we're a different breed man i love you let's get together you know let's get up soon and then that then i got that call and uh and then that happened <laughs> and then it was fentanyl it was a relapse and the story was it was fentanyl cut in there so when people are talking about the, the crisis and like I, i'm i'm already knowing you know um how real that is but um so that was that was like april may 2019 moved through that and then um get a call from mom in july oh well nico was sounding funny he was sounding funny on our calls and i said i call and i i said nick what's what's going on what, what are you um Anyways, I ended up calling his mom and saying, you need to check on him. That's not right. He's not sounding right, you know. Um, so she eventually checks on him and she calls me and 
lets me know he's he, he's dirty, he's naked, this place is a mess, he looks like he's been out on the street, he's incoherent. We're taking him to the hospital. Then she calls me and says they're doing emergency brain surgery, the tumors in his brain. Get your ass here. So I hang up the phone and I and I I had a banshee scream so much so that my neighbors would call me going dude did you fucking hear that I just primal primal like primal fucking rocked my neighborhood and howling I call my mom and my brother and let's ask them like, hey, can you give me a ride to the airport? I gotta go. So I'm gonna pack, I'm gonna go over there, I'm gonna go. And my brother got scared. So he called my partner at the time and she was in Palm Springs, I'm in LA. And he says, I'm scared for my brother. It's like, can you go? And she was like, by the time I get, I can, by the time I get there. So anyways, I go to my mom's and prior to this, I had, I I know I'm living on borrowed time. I know I'm live I'm by by all rights I shouldn't even be here because of my own previous choices way too many times. So I'm I'm under no delusion that I'm here on borrowed time. And I had a sense of not not egoist selfish pride but like uh, honor to be able to even be considered someone that could assist another lost human being to a better place. That humbles me. And I, and, but at this point, I'm like, fuck you, God, where are you? Fuck you, God, where are you? jump in and fix it now, right? As if I had that kind of power, but that's where I was. And that freaked everybody that knew me out because I'm like, you know, what's the higher road? What's the inner higher voice telling you? And at this point, I'm like, fuck that voice. It means shit right now. That's what I'll tell you to me. Save my son. Um, so I, I fly here. And he moves through that like a champion. Doctors are like, wow, you know, he's already trying to walk like days after brain surgery. He's my hero. And I remember looking at him, um, maybe it was the first night he was, he's out of it. And, and he wakes up in the middle of the night. I'm just sitting there praying in the dark over him. And, um, And I have all my, I have friends all over the world, you know, Wiccans, Hindu, Buddhist, Christians, Muslim, Jewish, all of them lighting candles and praying for me all around the world for him. And, and all of them. And, and I sit there and he, and, and he look and he, he says, dad, is that you? Or am I tripping? No, baby, it's me. I'm here. It's like, fuck, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry you gotta keep coming like this. I'm like, dude. He's <laughs> like, what are you doing? I said, I'm praying for you, Nick. 
and I'm fucking in awe. I'm in awe of you. Your fight is, I know you're my son, but your spirit, your fighting spirit is incredible to me and I'm in awe of you. Oh yeah, I mean those, whenever I see those kids, they are fucking brave. They got balls. They go through so much. And the thing is, usually they're the ones comforting their parents. Mommy, daddy, it's going to be okay. Don't want, that's how strong they are. They're, they're, they have such empathy at such a young age. They're so intelligent because they have to yeah. grow up so much faster. Yeah. 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 He moved, he moved to that. And um, I stayed. I stayed here in Sweden for, I think, uh, through his birthday, August. And then he's recouping and he's, he's, he's got a new zest for life. He's making his amends. He's making peace with his past. He's trying to figure out his next steps, you know, his wake up calls. And, um, and then it was like, okay, well, again, it was like, dad, I'm, I'm, I'm good right now. I'm just going to be doing this for a little while. So we need to go work, whatever you got to do. And like, okay, I'll, I'll bounce out for a little bit and I'll come back. So that was September. And, um, and then I would think I was gone a month. And, and then it was, shit, sorry. It was, uh, I can't walk. I can't feel my legs. So they're, they're taking him to the hospital in a wheelchair and tests come back that now there's, um, cancer in his, in his bone marrow. So this cancer is fucking out to get him all year. Everywhere it's at, they take it out and move somewhere else. It's out to get him now it's in his bone marrow. Well, that's a fucking death sentence. You know what I mean? And we're trying to stay hopeful. No, it's not. You know? No, it's not. And so I fly back. And that was uh, like the end. Around this, this time, 2019. And I've been here ever since. And that was, you know, talking about palliative care, talking about um, administered suicide, looking at those options, having those conversations with your son. He's 25 at the time. Um, rough, man. That Christmas was, and New Year's were fucking rough, you know? Um, taking care of your son, showering him, lifting him up and out of the bed in and out of bed with the crane, looking at him, trying to fight, but wanting to give up. He's like suffering. Um, and trying to recoup for another round of chemo and radiation in January. As the doctor said, we're bringing out the big guns on this. Uh, and then yeah, and he was around maybe like January 12th of 2020, somewhere around there, plus or minus a day. You, sit, you know, I'm sleep. I'm living in the hospital with him at this time and, and I'm doing shifts with mom. And he says, come here, dad. 
and uh, we were just watching TV or something. So I go up and he goes, come here, just motioning to hug him. And I just hug him, we just hug. And he was like kissing me on my neck and smelling me. And just holding me. And I'm like, Nick, I'm afraid I don't want to crush you. And he's like, just come here. You know, and I could feel his heartbeat. And I think it was like the next day, it was my turn to sleep. Or like to go, we're rotating shifts, and mom, you know, his mom was like, "Why don't you just go to our house and go rest now?" And that's the night he he ended up calling me in the middle of the night, and his mom said, "Hey, Nico wants to say something to you. He wanted me to call you." So I he's sort of slurring and out of it, and he says, "Hey, Dad, I just want to say, I just want to tell you, I love you so much. You're the best dad I could have ever ask for." And I said, "All right, Nick." okay are you okay yeah yeah i just and then he said something else incoherently i didn't understand he goes well i don't i don't know what i'm saying anyways dad i love you okay i'll see you I'll see you tomorrow when you get here okay honey i love you and then not even two hours later his mom calls and i can hear beeping and they're trying to revive him i can hear him calling nico nico the doctors and the nurses in the background they're trying to save him and um they put him on life support and he ended up dying january 15th uh, 2020 to pull the plug on him we were there which was a whole other um experience I, i'd never had uh with anyone but never thought i would have it with my own only son uh it was uh his mom his stepfather his brother and sister and myself around him for a while before they they pulled the plug. Um, there's something tribal and primal about that. Very spiritual and primal. Um, and I, and I, I suppose in a tragic way, beautiful, that I got to be with him coming in and the moment that he took his last breath. Uh, and... I went to a meeting a few hours later after that because I don't know why. I, I was gonna I was in between jump in front of the train or jump in front of a train. But um Nico was always very supportive of my program, like, hey dad, don't you need to hit a meeting right now? You know, what day is it? Shouldn't you go to your meeting? And I said, like, oh, yeah. So because we had each other because of my sobriety. And so much awesomeness because of my sobriety, my recovery. So I, I, and of course the phone's off the hook and people are trying to be supportive and I'm, and I just want to die. Um, but something about Nico is like, okay, I only got to have Nico. I only got to be here because of my recovery. And and I don't know how the the thought entered my mind to think of someone else in that moment, but it it slipped in, and I can't even really I don't even know how to I couldn't take credit for that. It was an inspired thought that was somebody is has lost their job, or is getting divorced, or stubbed their toe, or something, and thinks that they can't stay sober tonight. Fuck it, I'm going to a meeting. It was something like that. 
And that's what I did. And I shared and I kept sharing and I kept going to meetings and I kept trying not to die one day at a time. Um, and I managed to still be sober, but I realized at that point there was no going back. There was no going back to LA. There was no going back to try to, there was, there was no way to go back. There was nothing to go back to for me. There was only forward. There was only forward. I've been thrusted into a new reality that I didn't ask for consciously, but here we are. So to go back felt like pretend. It felt like trying to play pretend and wasn't gonna work. So I had to, you know, there were casualties of that, you know? Um, and there was like this new frontier of like, I'm Sweden, I'm not a citizen. How am I gonna earn, where am I gonna go? <laughs> What am I going to do? And then COVID yeah. happened for the rest of the world. You know what I mean? So um, it's wild. But I ended up marrying my freaking sweetheart here um, during it all. And I became a, I got a personal number, became a legal resident this year in Sweden. Um, I fly back. I, I get to travel for work. So that's, that's a blessing. But I'm looking to help take my experience that I've been able to help in other parts of the world and trying to trying to help Sweden, people in Sweden, um, and and looking for any ways that I can honor Nico, you know, um, with regards to music and art. Just a few months, a couple of months after he passed away, I, I needed to do something with that. So I flew to Berlin to a friend of mine's place, and we recorded a song that I wrote for him. And um, ended up, we came back, I came back to Sweden and filmed a video with a couple of friends of mine and his mom. The song's called The Dream Is Over. Um, and it's up on YouTube and had a couple of friends talk about it. It won first place in the international songwriting competition. Um, and I say all that in hearing myself say it, not because I actually need anything from that other than to say that that was a that, that was something a labor of love that was a that was a song for me to Nico but but something was shifting within me that I had to reassess why I'm going to stay here cuz it can't be it couldn't be for things that maybe I cared about before so much or what other people care about about this life like I, I kind of like stopped giving a fuck about a lot of this world and and um uh, I, maybe that's not necessarily true I needed this grief and pain to not I, I need I needed it for me to not be in vain I needed his life and my pain to be mean something it has to become something. It can't stay a tragedy only. My life cannot be a play of victimhood and self-pity. I already did all that shit early on in the game. There's been way too too much footwork to go there. Mm -hmm. great, meet. A lot of great art comes from pain. Yeah, yeah. That's, I suppose that's true. 
Paul McCartney had, lost his mom. John Lennon lost yeah. his mom. Johnny Cash lost his brother. Elvis was a stillborn twin. He had guilt his whole life. He thought he killed his brother in the womb. So, yeah, a lot of these guys had pain. Yeah. 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 I just felt like, well, I can't be the only, not the only one because I started to get um, in sharing the journey. I started to, to get messages from people I knew and a lot of messages from people I never met and didn't know through social media all over the world that were identifying or could identify in some way or had some pain and wanted to talk about it or thought I was perceived me to be a very strong person. So therefore I inspired them still, even I still get that now, right? They're like, dude, I'm watching you. I got one of my good friends. He, he just lost his stepson earlier this year and it's rough for them, him and his wife. And, and he goes, dude, I've, I've known you a long time, dude. And I, I'm watching you. And, and when I think I can't, I'm like, dude, look at Tom. And he's like, so I just want to thank you, dude. Um, because I see if you can do it, I can fucking do this. And so that, that's, that's the goods. That's the money. That's the money. When you can be an alchemist, man, and you can just by simply refusing to give up on living. Like just being willing to fucking stand in the storm or grab some shelter, find your moment and take another step. Then take another. If you get knocked down, lick your wounds and get back up and try again. And in just doing that, it matters to you. Like people pay attention. People are listening. People are watching. There's a lot of noise in the world, dude. But you know what? There's a lot of beautiful stuff too, man. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of power. True power. Not ego power. Not bully power. Not money power. Um, human spirit power. And yeah, that 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 means the most to me. I think that that's uh. I don't know what else to say about that, but it's a journey you've been on. It's quite the journey. So getting towards the end here, let me ask you this question. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Advice? Mm. Well, I would say that it's hard to say depending on what you're struggling with, but but if anything, I would say if if you make if one makes not harming themselves priority to keep it simple, right? 
if I can just try and not harm myself. Because I would want to say, you know, you hear things like self-love or self-care. But sometimes that's hard to find that's that part of the spectrum. Sometimes that's like, that's you just might as well be talking another language. You know, I, I'm nowhere near that. So if you can just try to not harm yourself for a moment and be where you're at, feel it, even when it's ugly, without harming yourself, feel that. You know, it's, nobody wants to do it. But if you can, um, it will galvanize you. It will temper you. Let pain be a teacher to you. Use it. Use it as fuel to be the bigger version of you. You know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's where the growth happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because from that point, you can springboard into finding your your tribe. You can, you know, you from that from that mindset. Now you've set the you've set your framework, your mental plane in a particular on a particular foundation, foundationary belief system, which is I'm I'm no longer moving from a place of self harm. And then from that place, then your brain goes, yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not in self-harm. Well, what, what lives in that? Oh, well, the contrast to that, which is, well, what can I do that's good for me then? Because it, now you're in that, in that space. And from that point, all kinds of possibilities spring forth into your awareness. Spend some time in contemplation not morbid contemplation. I tell you what I do, man, is I have a ritual every day, practice and exercise. Or I count immediately when I recognize I'm here on earth again, I go and I just pick things that I'm grateful for. Thank you for this bed. Thank you for 10 fingers. Thank you for loving people in my life. Thank you for food to eat. Thank you for clean water. And then I can go on from there. Thank you for Nico. You know, thank you for my health and just making thank you the prayer. That helps a lot. It's awesome, man. It's really, uh, you're an inspiration. Thanks, man. So you have anything else that you want to add in? Um, well, I feel like that's a lot. No, you did great. I mean, I think this has been a great interview. So, yeah, I mean, really appreciate you doing this today. I want to thank you. Dude, you know, I, I want to thank you um, for this platform and for letting me come on and and share my experience. And I, you know, I just hope that whoever listens to it, if, if somebody can, can take something from it and if it helps somebody get through a, a rough patch, then that's a, that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. 
and you're you know you're creating a platform for people to have support so more power to you man thank you jim thank you no problem man i'm happy to do it i'm happy to do it all right sit tight for me for everybody watching and listening if you like what you saw and heard go below and give us a like also subscribe to see when we upload new videos you can check us out on twitter reddit facebook instagram and tiktok I also suggest checking out our website, www.addicts-anonymous.com. There's plenty of free resources there, as well as free literature. I hope you enjoyed today, and until next time.